The Nuggets gutted out a championship, while the Golden Knights produced a laugher. As both teams have won titles for the first time in their franchise's history, I'll recap both clinchers and the South Florida teams as they lick their wounds into the offseason. Do I have to discuss the Mets? You're damn right I do. And what is going on in Oakland as the fans come out for a reverse boycott? The U.S. Open tees off at the L.A. Country Club today with Brooks Kepka and Roy McIlroy, paired at the same time with the fallout of the Live PGA acquisition last week. Drama in Buffalo surrounding Stefan Diggs and the Bills organization. We start to make the pivot in the sports world, but it's still coming at us fast and furious. It's all coming up, but first, this message. Jay Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, smack dab in the middle of June as we steer this sports ship in a different direction. Out are the fall and winter sports, and here comes summer as I recap all that's going on as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back, and like I mentioned, the pivot has come. Do I even say that we're into the Sports Dead Zone Part 2, as I like to call it? And maybe once we get into July, because we do have a few things that are percolating. Not only that, come next week, we'll have the NBA Draft, as well as the NHL Draft. I know a lot of people may not care much about the NHL Draft. We know the big gun there, Connor Bedard, and where he's going to go with the Blackhawks having the number one pick. Of this upcoming draft. And then of course Victor Wimbanyama With San Antonio. So you have that. All the free agency that will happen right around July 1st. I'm sure a lot of the rumors heading into the end of the month. And into the following month will be ablaze everywhere. On Twitter feeds, social media, etc. But now that we could put to rest. The NBA and NHL. And of course I have to go over what happened in both game fives in each sports. But now we kind of have the dust settling in the sports world because baseball is pretty much the only one that's going to keep us on a day-to-day, week-to-week as we get through June, as we get into July, of course the dog days of August, before, dare I even say, we start talking about college football and the NFL. And yes, I understand that training camp is about 
five and a half, maybe six weeks away tops. I would say five and a half because usually these training camps open July 21st, 22nd, somewhere around there. So the NFL fan can rejoice and jump up and down. And we even have some news and notes there as we'll get to that later on with what's happening with the Buffalo Bills. But let's go back to Monday night. The Denver Nuggets, after winning two games in Miami, had a game in their building, which a lot of people thought was going to be a coronation. I had a feeling that both Denver and Vegas were going to win game fives, although I thought Florida would probably have a better shot than Miami. And in this case, it was the other way around, where the Heat stood pat, stood strong, actually played well to the point where they had a couple of one-point leads down the stretch. Jimmy Butler did not play well for three and a half quarters, and then he turned it on there in the final couple of minutes before it imploded on him. But give it up for what the Nuggets did, not only just in a game five, but throughout the whole postseason as we've chronicled, it seems like, every podcast over the last couple of months. And even though they didn't get a big performance there from Jamal Murray, and yes, you did get 28-16 from the NBA Finals MVP and a one Nikola Jokic, Michael Porter Jr. chipped in nicely. Aaron Gordon did not do much there. And it was a collective effort, though, when it was all said and done, when it comes to defensively late in the game, where Jimmy Butler had a Freddie Brown moment from Georgetown UNC yesteryear in the championship game, 1982, where at 90-89, to he threw the ball into the hands of Contavious Caldwell-Pope, 90-89, to where the Heat looked like they were going to take the lead with less than a minute to go. And then on top of that, the hero ball three by Butler, which was bricked, recovered by the Nuggets, and then they drained two free throws to make it 94-89, and then that was your NBA final. And again, it was a competitive game. The Heat did fight back. Nuggets had an 83-76 lead there in the fourth quarter before Butler started to get hot. You had that atrocious call there where Butler went up for a three there on the right side, and because of his motion... And Aaron Gordon was just standing there innocently where Butler kicked Gordon. They called a foul. Three free throws because it was behind the arc. And Butler made those three to cut the lead from 86-82 to 86-85. That was a big stretch there because Butler, who up until that point, I believe, shot two for 13. And he was able to get a couple of threes under his belt. He got those three free throws to cut that lead to one. And that's where the medal... The grit of the Nuggets throughout this whole postseason, as we've seen. And granted, they played from in front for the most part. Whether that meant 3-1 against Minnesota, where the game went into overtime and they pulled it out. Having to go on the road in a Game 6 to Phoenix, where they lost those two middle games of that series. And they blew them out by 25. Those down-to-the-wire games in LA on the road, where I understand it was a sweep, so they were playing from in front. But still, those are the games that are really what makes champions. And because of the groundwork that was laid heading into the finals, and especially even a couple of stretches in the games on the road in Miami. Now, granted, the scores got out of control. 108-95, I believe, was game four. But they're able to win these games even when they're not at their best. And that's what you saw the Nuggets, because they did anything and everything to give the game to Miami to say, here, you guys want to go back to Miami game six? I got you. They were terrible from three. They missed a zillion free throws. And one of the reasons why Miami was still within a point and even had a one-point lead there late was because of their ineptitude behind the arc and at the charity stripe. And to think, 
the Nuggets, even with all their foibles there, when they were trying to make those shots from three or missing 10 free throws as they did throughout the course of the game, you thought Miami was going to pull that out because that's the type of game they want to play. They want to play in the mud. They want to play in the muck. They don't want to have a 123-116 type of game. Now, they've played those games in the postseason as evidenced in the previous series against the Celtics. But against the Nuggets, they knew that they had to keep it tight. There was no way that they could let the Nuggets just run up and down the floor, especially if Jokic, of all people, was going to be the floor general leading the brigade, leading the attack to try to facilitate to his teammates. But I thought Miami was going to come out of that game alive considering that the Nuggets let them back in. But when we look at the pass by Butler to Coldwell Pope, as I mentioned, and then him trying to play hero ball. They were down by three at the point at that moment, which was what? About, off the top of my head, less than 20 seconds to go. And what they should have done, and you heard the broadcast there with Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, he should have tried to go to the basket because even if he would have made a couple of free throws, now granted that it would have been pressure-packed free throws at that, but remember, he just made those three free throws as I detailed just a couple of minutes ago. So even at that point, let's just say if he made the two free throws and it would have been 92-91, even if they fouled Denver and let's say even if they made both free throws, then you'd have a desperation attempt to make a three no matter where you are on the floor. And as it was, Butler didn't need to make that three then and it was a bad three because it was a turnaround jumper. And we all know Butler's not a three-point shooter. Yes, he's had made three-point shots as we saw earlier in the quarter. But he's not your marksman. He's not your sniper. He's not going to be confused with Steph Curry, Ray Allen, or Reggie Miller. So be that as it may, Denver goes on to win a championship. First one in their franchise's history. As you saw all the numbers throughout, Nikola Jokic led in points, rebounds, and assists. First time a player has ever done that in NBA playoff history. And what more can you say about the Nuggets and what they've done? Just a phenomenal job. Throughout the course of this postseason, they lost four games total throughout the one against Minnesota, two against Phoenix, and the one against Miami. Set a 16-4 record throughout this postseason, and they deserve to be champs. They were number one in the West for a reason, and what more can you say? The celebration was great. I didn't watch all of it, but Jokic, we all know he's so unassuming. He's a guy that does not want the spotlight, as you saw in the postgame there when he talked about or somebody had asked him on whether or not the parade, how much he's going to look forward to that, knowing that the season is over and that's going to be the culmination of all the hard work. And he turned to the PR guy or or woman to say, when's the parade? All I want to do is just go home. We won a championship. The job's finished. Let's go home. I'll see you in training camp late September into October. That's the type of guy he is. And you got to admire that. Because in sports, we all know it's about me. It's about making the highlight reels. It's about... Promotion, and I get it. This is the world we live in in 2023. But Jokic is the antithesis of that. And how could you not like a guy who just puts on his hard hat, brings his lunch pail for a superstar like that who has already won two MVPs, now has a ring and a finals MVP to boot? He's a guy that just says, Hey, I'm here to work. Basketball is not my priority. Yes, it's important because it's what I do, but it's not my entire life, as he said throughout this whole postseason. So you got to give it up for what he did. Good for that city. Now, they've won championships, obviously, last year with the Colorado Avalanche, and the Broncos have won a Super Bowl over the last 10 years. 
going back to Super Bowl 50. But for that team, ABA to NBA, first time in the finals in 47 years, being in the NBA and now winning it. And you're happy for Jamal Murray. And you saw how emotional he got in the postgame, knowing that he had to come back from that ACL. And there were a lot of doubts and long days and tough days, etc. And also when you look at other guys who filled in, whether it's Jeff Green, who had a small role, but we all know the open heart surgery, eight different teams throughout the NBA, came close in 2018 when he was with the Cavs and LeBron, but they lost to the Golden State Warriors that year. And his trajectory, his basketball life comes to a just culmination of winning a title and looking at just other players, whether you're Michael Porter Jr., who had a good game, but we all know he's an enigma, but he did contribute. Aaron Gordon had that big game four, didn't do much here in a game five, but you saw him walking the streets without a shirt after the celebration in the arena. What more can you say? The only bad thing about what happened there Monday night in Denver was the senseless shooting where you had, thankfully nobody perished from what I saw, but you had nine or ten people wounded because of a watch party, I think about a mile or less than a mile from the arena and where somebody fired off a gun and you had a bunch of people injured and a couple that were in critical condition. But other than that, just a tremendous evening for the Nuggets as they one more time win their first championship and not much more else that needs to be said about what they've done and congratulations to them. And on the flip side of that, I know the Heat had a tremendous run here. You cannot discount what they did as an eighth seed being that close to being knocked out of the playing round by the Chicago Bulls. Now they got a big break with Giannis getting hurt in game one of that series and people could say, all right, well, Tyler Hero did not play in the postseason after breaking his thumb or his hand there in that same game. And you could argue that. But not having Giannis there was critical because for almost three games, you didn't have him there. And you could fault the Bucks there in a game four where they were up 102-89 with six minutes to go and Jimmy Butler had that 56-point explosion. Understood. But they got by that round. They beat the Knicks, who maybe a lot of people thought it was going to be more competitive than a six-game series to where the Heat got up 3-1. And then we all know about the Celtics series. They're up 3-0. They spit the bit to where they had to go to a Game 7 in Boston, and we know what happened there. And then even after winning Game 2 in Denver, where they had a chance to at least get a split, knowing that they were going back home, but Denver took care of business on the road, as I talked about, and they ran out of gas. And I know this is going to sting the Celtic fans, to JD, to Justin, and of course yours truly. When you look at this run and how they got just otherworldly performances from the Gabe Vincents, the Caleb Martins, to a certain degree or lesser degree, the Max Druces of the world, to where they were able to just shoot the lights out of the ball against the Celtics just in the previous series. And boy, did the clock strike 12 and the pumpkin showed up right at midnight because... Neither one of those three guys did absolutely squat. Other than Vincent in game two, which I believe he shot five for 10 and had 19 points. But these guys were on the bench. These guys were just a shell of what we saw just a couple of weeks prior and reinforced the Heat culture, Pat Riley, Eric Spolster, that they do have a good duo in Butler and Adebayo. Not a great one. They are not amongst the ranks of Tatum and Brown or LeBron, AD, Booker, Durant, no way. You're already starting to hear the rumblings of Damian Lillard going to Miami, which I don't think would be a good move for the Heat. And I'll explain why in a bit. 
But for them to get to the mountaintop, we saw them in the finals in the bubble. They came close. They were one shot for going to the finals last year. And now they fell just a few games short. They need to have that other guy. They need to have another scorer because this team is bereft of scoring. And yes, we did see flashes from those aforementioned guys that gave them numbers, and even Duncan Robinson. And I get it that no Tyler Hero, who knows what that would have meant for the Heat if he was healthy and was in the lineup. But you also have to understand that this team, even with the Tyler Hero or another guy that could complement Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, they need to have another bonafide all-star, whether that is, let's just say, Damian Lillard or Bradley Beal, who now the Wizards have talked about him being on the block and they're going to be open for trade discussions. Who knows if the Heat are going to go down that road. And the reason why I don't like Lillard is because he's 34 years old. And yes, you know he's going to be salivating at the just the thought of getting to a finals and winning it. And I'm sure he has a lot left in the tank. But do you see what his contract is going to look like here in the next three, four years? After next year, I believe he's going to be in the bracket of over $60 million for the 2024, 25, and 25, 26. And if you're going to pay somebody $60 million, at that point it'll be what, 36 and 37? That is going to kill any opportunity. And we know that Pat Riley, they're not going to be stingy. Now, yes, he had to be a little thrifty and had to have LeBron, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade buy in to take less money in order for them to win championships. But with the way the NBA is now, knowing that you have Butler is going to make 40-some-odd million, Adebayo is making somewhere in the vicinity of 30, and you can't bring in a $60 million guy, no way. Now, even a guy like Bradley Beal, who I believe his next two years, he's going to be making somewhere in the vicinity of 45 to $48 million. Still a lot, but it's not $60 million. That's why I don't think it would be a benefit for Miami and they would have to trade a lot of pieces. Tyler Hero being one, and he just signed a max contract last year somewhere in the vicinity of $140 million for four years. So that's for Riley and company to decide, but they do need to bring in another big-time player there if they want to get over the hump and win a title. So that's what you have there with the Heat and them running out of gas there at the end, and that's your NBA pretty much in a big nutshell. And now we look forward to the draft next week. We know who's going to go number one. It's just a matter of what Portland's going to do. You're going to hear a lot of rumblings from now until then about Damian Lillard. And who knows if the Celtics are going to entertain that with Jalen Brown. That's a big giant question mark. I can't even answer that right now. But lots to discuss there in the weeks to come when it comes to not only the draft, but also trades and free agency. So we'll touch on that as we get closer to that time frame. Now, let me get to the NHLs. I lace up my skates. And game five, when you knew that Matthew Kachuk was not going to be in the lineup, and obviously it was a big-time secret, nobody knew until after game five when it was all said and done as Vegas just ran the Panthers out of the rink, winning 9-3. to And Paul Maurice came out to say that Matthew Kachuk had a fractured sternum from that hit by Keegan Colasar in game three. Even playing in game four was tough for him. He couldn't even get dressed. That's how bad it was. So Kachuk gutted it out. Even he said in the postgame after game four, he doesn't even know what his status is going to be. And if he's going to say that, you knew that it was probably the beginning of the end for the Panthers to even have any shot of getting the series back to sunrise for game six. And for the game itself, the Panthers had opportunities early. They had the one 
turnover there by Vegas deep in their zone where Lindahl had a shot on net, which Aiden Hill was able to save. Then on a power play, Alexander Barkov was right on the doorstep ready to knock it in, but Hill made another big save there. And who knows? You could have had a 2-0 lead there, Florida. Maybe the Vegas Golden Knights play a little tight. Could have been a whole different outlook there from that opening 6-7 minutes. But then, on that same power play, Mark Stone on a 2-on-1, bangs in a shorthanded goal, and that's when you knew that, uh uh-oh, this could turn quickly. Sure enough, a few minutes later on, the Golden Knights get the second goal. And even with Alexander Barkov getting that goal there in the early portion of the second period, you thought to yourself, all right, this next goal is going to be key because if the Panthers could get the equalizer and still be within distance, whether it's tied or even one goal behind, but you knew that next goal was going to be critical. And as it was, halfway through, you had the Golden Knights get the goal to extend it to 3-1, to one, and then the roof caved in on the Panthers. They gave up four goals in that period. They were a buzzsaw throughout. Mark Stone ended up with a hat trick. They led 6-1 after two. End up going away 9-3, as I mentioned. And I can't put this all on Sergei Bobrovsky because once they got that third goal, it was all downhill for the Vegas Golden Knights. And Florida had no answers. At that point, the barrage and the floodgates were open and there isn't anything that the Panthers could have done. Now, they got a couple of goals in the third period, so they didn't give up. But you already knew once... They made it 4-1 and even 5-1 before they even got that final goal there with two seconds left to go in the period to make it 6-1. You knew that the game was over and there was no way that Vegas was going to spit up that lead. And now you have the Vegas Golden Knights where I talked about this on my YouTube feed yesterday. What if you're a fan of the Philadelphia Flyers, my beloved New York Islanders who have not won a cup, 40th anniversary since their last cup. Flyers haven't won since 1975. And then the Toronto Maple Leafs, as we know and talked about ad nauseum, have not won since 1967. Here you have a franchise that has been to two Stanley Cups in six years since their inaugural year of 2017-18. And they've already won a Stanley Cup just a couple of nights ago. And how do those fan bases feel knowing that the Golden Knights, who, whether they're favored going into next year or not, but they're going to have a banner raised, they're going to be fitted for their ring size, and... They are celebrating in the streets probably tomorrow because the parade for the Nuggets is today. So you would think that the celebration for the Golden Knights somewhere up the Vegas Strip will take place. And teams that have been around which seems to be forever and have not won a cup in forever, they're going to look at this and say, hey, can we retool? Can we reboot? Can we do whatever it takes to kind of get to where the Vegas Golden Knights are? And think about this. Bruce Cassidy, your coach of the Golden Knights, who got fired by the Bruins, talk about sweet poetic justice. He gets fired. From afar, he sees what's happening in Boston with their epic and record-breaking season. They gag to the team that he actually beat in a Stanley Cup final. And you talk about just tasting the champagne out of that cup being probably sweeter than when he won it in Boston a dozen years ago. Jack Eichel who, as we talked about a couple of springs ago, or really a couple of off-seasons ago, when he had that issue with his neck, where the Sabres looked at that and said that we're not going to have him be approved of that surgery by his own medical team, that the Sabres wanted to do it because they thought that it was going to be very risky. 
And even with his representation saying that, uh-uh, we're going to go this route, and not only that, in the process, you're going to have to trade us. So what do they do? The Sabres trade him to Vegas. And yes, it was a long road for Eichel where he got back sooner than he thought, which was what, I believe sometime in the latter part of December into January. Well, guess what? He's a Stanley Cup champion, and the Sabres talk about a team that hasn't won a cup in forever. The last time they were in a cup was 1999. Dallas Stars, I'm sure they still have nightmares of Brett Hull in the crease with Dominic Hasek in a game six. But there's another team that's probably looking at that saying, geez, when are we going to get our cup? So kudos to Eichel. Your MVP is Jonathan Marchessault, the former Florida Panther who prior to being drafted by the Vegas Golden Knights, was an original Golden Knight because of his final year in Florida, and they left him unprotected in that draft. And he started off this playoff slow. He didn't get going until midway through the series against Edmonton, and then he just took off to where he's your Smythe Trophy winner for playoff MVP. And as far as the Florida Panthers go, once Kachuk was going to be out, and let's say even if he was there as a decoy, there was no way that they were going to be able to overcome that. Now, if Kachuk was 100%, they probably still wouldn't have won, but they may have won, or they may have lost, I should say, maybe 5-1 instead of 9-3. And you had two great runs by two eight seeds down in South Florida. They both lose in five. The Panthers, you got to wonder whether or not that it was just tough luck. I'm not going to say that the layoff hurt them because they were involved in a tight game one. And yes, game two got away from them there, but they did win a game three. And they fought back in game four, but fell short there with that final second scrum. And this was just too much for them to overcome. I mean, that's the only way that you could put it. And now you have to wonder as they go into this offseason, and yes, they could ride high and they could reflect back and talk about this magic carpet ride that just... The thread didn't have enough to carry them to a Stanley Cup championship. So now let's see where they go. Just like the Miami Heat. I don't know if they're going to maybe get a new goaltender. We know Spencer Knight was a guy supposed to be the future goalie of the Panthers. And he was injured and did not play the rest of this regular season into the postseason. Bobrovsky, I don't know what his contract status is for next year. But again, I can't fault him for what happened there the other night. He did carry them to this cup final. And maybe based on that, he does come back for another year. I believe he has one more year left on his deal. But there's your NBA and NHL seasons as they look forward to the draft. And you have a couple of news and notes with the NHL before I move on. Your new Ranger coach is Peter Laviolette. Another retread, and I get it, a lot of these coaches are going to be retreads. But here's a guy that's been on five other teams. Yes, he did win a cup in Carolina and did be part of a Stanley Cup with the Flyers, I believe, in that 2010 season. But he's had a lot of stops. His first stop was with the Islanders 22 years ago. And let's see what the Rangers and how that marriage with Laviolette's going to be. Is he going to be the guy that's going to push them over the top? I understand Gerard Gallant wasn't the guy, considering the moves that the Rangers made throughout the regular season, bringing in Vladimir Tarasenko and Patrick Kane, and all the young players that they have, as well as the good mix with the Artemi Panarins and the Chris Kreiders, guys like that, to go along with Capococco and Alexis Lafreniere. But they weren't even able to get out of a first round against the Devils where they had a two 
5-0 series lead and won both games 1-2, and 5-1. But Laviolette, now where I would have gone for another coach, I couldn't even tell you, but I wouldn't have gone with Laviolette. I would have gone somewhere else. I understand you don't want to go. It's not like the NFL where, or even baseball where you go with that first-time coach or that young coach. They did that with David Quinn. If you remember before Gerard Gallant, we saw how that unfolded. So the Rangers were going to go with more of a name coach, a guy who has won a cup, as James Dolan said in the, in the press conference. But I would have stood away considering he just got fired by the Capitals. But we'll see what's going to happen there come next season. And then the Senators sold for a record $950 million. Can you believe that? Now, I understand it's Ottawa. It's not New York, Boston, Toronto, Montreal. It's not even LA if you're the Kings. But knowing that the Washington Commanders, what did they just recently sell for? $6.05 billion? And here the Senators are $950 million to a guy named Michael Anlauer, who is the CEO of a healthcare group up in, I believe it's in Montreal. But he also has his hands on a couple of other things. I think construction is one of them, if I'm not mistaken. But he's the guy that's taken over. So the reason why I bring that up is because the record $950 million, if another team gets sold or if there is a chance that someone's going to buy an NHL franchise, I'm sure... If it's going to be in a hockey hotbed, it's going to be worth a fortune. But then again, if you're in a hockey hotbed and you are an owner of a team, you're not going to sell. So you would think that you're going to hold tight to that organization. But I just thought to bring that up. And that's going to be a perfect segue as I lace up my cleats and put on the batting gloves and get in the batter's box for baseball. Did you see what happened in Oakland a couple of nights ago? Where the fan base of the Oakland A's came out Fast and in a gigantic throng of 27,000 spectators. And if you've seen the average of their attendance throughout the course of this year, it's a little bit over 8,000, which is skewed because a lot of their games, you're lucky if there's 3,000 fans in the ballpark. And for this particular game, and this was Tuesday night, the first of four, and I thought it was a three-game series. If I mentioned that the other day, my apologies. I know I talked about that on my YouTube feed, but for the Oakland A's who came into the series against Tampa with a five-game winning streak, winning two in Pittsburgh, three in Milwaukee, and then they won the first two games against the Tampa Bay Rays, and we know what Tampa's done this year. And they lost last night, so they had a seven-game winning streak snapped in Oakland where they'll wrap up this series later this afternoon. But for this contingent of A's fans to come out not only into the ballpark, but to the parking lot with signs, t-shirts, telling the owner John Fisher to sell the team, what a disgrace this has become, keep the team in Oakland, they're showing their support. But here's the bad thing about it. It's too little too late. You should have been doing this a couple of years back where the team coming off of a playoff performance in 2020 And they've had success over the last decade and a half. They had made the postseason. Whether it was 2014 when they lost the playing game to Kansas City. 2018 when they lost to the Yankees there at Yankee Stadium. 2019 they lost to the Rays there. And that was in their home ballpark. They lost 5-1. So it's not as if this team has been languishing for the last decade plus. 
They've had good teams. They've won 97 games, I believe, the year that they played the Yankees in that wild card game. So it's not as if this has been a triple-A team. But we can look back to last year when they traded Matt Olson away to Atlanta, when they traded Matt Chapman to Toronto, Chris Bassett to the Mets, Sean Murphy this offseason. They should have been parking at the ownership then. And you could bring all the t-shirts, sell the team, the banners. You could fly a plane helicopter over with a big giant banner. John Fish is going to laugh at that. You think he's going to look at the fan base and say, oh yeah, you know what, I'm going to sell guys. When you've heard over the last few days and traction over the last few weeks about how Vegas is going to put up some money, some public money to fund a ballpark about a mile from the Strip. And yesterday it was actually approved. I think it still has to go through a couple of boards and directors, etc. But they've got $380 million already in their pockets to put forth the construction of not only the site, which they already have, but to start putting shovels and breaking ground on a new stadium. So for them to come out and yes, show them the support, all right, fantastic. But guess what? The money is pretty much already somewhere in escrow or somewhere in an account, maybe not under John Fisher's name, but under the Oakland A's, and he's ready to get the hell out of Dodge. So even with the seven-game winning streak and even with this little groundswell, you should have done this a year and a half ago or when they started making those trades to say, hey, what's going on here? Keep the team in Oakland, considering they've seen the Raiders go to Vegas and they saw the Warriors go to the other side of the bay and now Vegas is going to pluck the baseball team. Sorry, A's fans, the 27,000 that are out there You should have done something about this earlier or have gone to the mayor or had some sort of gathering or rally to get to the ownership to say, let's do what it takes. And it's not as if John Fisher tried to keep the team in Oakland. They looked at that Howard's Terminal, which is right there, not too far from the arena, the old Oracle, and of course the Alameda Coliseum. But that was shot down. So it's not as if he tried to make an attempt to keep the A's in Oakland to have a 35,000-seat ballpark, which would have been an area where they would have had restaurants and maybe housing to kind of... There's nothing in that vicinity to where you could go before a game to eat or after a game to have a drink. There's none of that. And what Fisher tried to do was to have a development to not only keep the team there, but also to have a thriving community and a nightlife to where people could go before the game and after to have an experience there in a day or a night out there in that Howard's Terminal area. But that's going to go up in smoke. And what you have is the A's are going to be going to Vegas probably in the next two to three years. So they could cry all they want about keep the team and sell the team. and Can't do it now. That's over and out. So, yes, was it nice to see them come out and show their support? For one night it was. But even then, when I saw that, and I was like, wow, look at this. But wait a second. You guys should have done this at the start of last season. Not June the 13th, when it's pretty much all said and done that this team is going to move to Nevada. So that's what I got there. Subway Series... 
a split. Thankfully, the Mets were able to get that yesterday. The game the other night was atrocious on so many levels. Max Scherzer, who I said this before, and I'll say it one more time, against big-time teams. We saw against the Braves last week, didn't do the job. Against the Brewers, if you remember, and the Brewers, they've hit the skids. They've lost six in a row, and they're in a free fall in the NL Central. He got bombed in Milwaukee. You saw what happened there, 5-1 lead, and he spit the bit there in that fifth inning or sixth inning. And then Brandon Nimmo misplayed a fly ball. He dropped it, which led to the go-ahead run. Drew Smith gets thrown out of the game, which is an absolute joke because of the sticky stuff. Now, have you seen Drew Smith pitch here over the last few weeks? He's been awful, and he just came into the game. It's not as if he was walking off the mound after pitching an inning. He comes into the game, they check the glove, they check his hand, and he gets thrown out. And Buck Showalter, I don't know if from afar, I'm not in the locker room, I'm not anywhere near the ballpark to find out what's going on. But you have to wonder whether or not maybe the players, not to say that they're turning on Buck, but you wonder if there's just a slight disconnect between the players and Buck because let's say for instance Drew Smith the other night now Buck came out there hands in his back pockets or arms crossed he's going to have that steely look and not to say that Buck we understand he's not the type of guy that's going to blow a gasket he's not going to pull a Billy Martin and throw dirt on the home plate or throw his hat across the diamond he's not going to do that but he doesn't show a lot of emotion to back up his players now I get it on the other side of town Aaron Boone I think overdoes it but at least the players know that if something happens on the diamond, whether it's balls and strikes or a call, whatever, Boone's going to go out there and not only defend, but he's probably going to get thrown out. Where with Walter, even Drew Smith, and you saw him, he was incredulous, thinking like, wait a minute, I just came out from the bullpen. And how is this guy cheating when his ERA is over four, or whatever it is right now? So between that and then even last night, when you had a scenario where Jeff McNeil was playing on the other side of second base, and he was... I get it that McNeil was trying to cheat there a little bit where they called the ball on that one play there in the seventh inning, I believe it was. And McNeil went into the dugout just crazy. And even though Buck came out and Buck was inquisitive and trying to find out what was going on, but still didn't show over exuberance or wasn't animated to say, hey, come on guys, to the umpires that, can we catch a break here? What's going on? Uh Uh-uh, he didn't do that. So you got to wonder just a little bit whether or not with the way this team's performed, and I'm not going to blame it all on that, but maybe something's going on in the locker room where there's not a lot of trust between the players and the manager. Because everything was coconuts and palm trees last year with 101 victories, although they gagged at the end, but this year, 32 and 36. But as it was, the Mets were able to get out of that game last night alive. They were down 3-1. They came back there. Nimmo, who had a, thankfully redeemed himself there last night, but with that drop fly ball, and then he gets picked off his second base there. Ah, uh, just terrible. And then you had Nimmo with the heroics there in the bottom of the tent where he hits the long fly ball. Jake Bowers goes back on it. But then when it's off the wall, he gives up on the play. But thanks to Billy McKinney, heads up by him, where what the hell is Eduardo Escobar doing tagging up on that play? He has to be halfway there. And I understand that people could look at it with one out, that even if he tags up, all it takes is a wild pitch, etc. But you have to be, maybe not even halfway, be a third of the way. Because even, let's say, if Bowers does catch that ball, he is going to be so discombobulated and so contorted that there's no way, and he's left-handed, that he's going to have to just pivot and turn his whole body around to even get close to an accurate throw to third. And understand, Eduardo Escobar is not Ricky Henderson as far as his speed, 
But he almost got thrown out that plate. He was literally a second and a half away from that being a bang-bang play at the plate. And if he was thrown out, oh my goodness. But as it was, the Mets won. And give it up. Verlander pitched well. He labored through the first two innings. He threw over 50 pitches. He threw 100 and some odd. But he gave you six innings. He gave you six strikeouts, no walks. And Derek Cole was excellent as well. And I can't believe how good the Yankee bullpen is because they have a bunch of guys who I'm not going to say are all no names. We know Michael King. We know Clay Holmes. They have guys and they have good arms. But boy, to have the best bullpen in baseball as of June 15th, good for them. But let me see that in October. But the Yankees now go to Boston. The Mets play the Cardinals. Let's see if they can beat up on St. Louis, who has been awful, as we know, and have been more down than up this year. So we'll see what happens there. Then you have a couple of big injuries there in Houston with Jordan Alvarez out four weeks with an oblique. And you know that they've been hurting all year with Michael Brantley on the shelf for the start of the year and Altuve missing almost the first couple of months of this year. Now you have Alvarez, who has 17 homers and 50-some-odd RBIs, is going to be out for a month. Lance McCullers, who had not pitched all year, but he's going to be shut down as he needs right forearm surgery. So that's another key arm that's going to not pitch this year. As we saw there with the Luis Rivera, he's has Tommy John. We know about Kristen Javier and Fran Valdez, who pitched very well a couple nights ago. But the Astros, you kind of wonder whether or not they're going to make it to the postseason. But are they going to go back-to-back? Way too early to tell. We know the Astros have a lot of championship DNA in that locker room. But things haven't really fired on all cylinders this year. And even though they're above 500 and they're in second place currently behind the Texas Rangers, but one thing for sure is that the Astros, and again, there's still 90-some-odd games to go, so a lot can happen, but things haven't really clicked in Houston this year, and who knows if they're going to. So we'll have to wait and see how the rest of the summer unfolds and whether or not that Houston does get themselves on track to the point where they'll be at the top spot in the NL West and they'll overtake the Texas Rangers. Now they're four in the loss, three and a half back, as of right this second, so having Alvarez and a big bat out of the lineup is going to be huge, so we'll wait to see what happens there. Other than that, with baseball, Braves swept the Tigers during a double dip out in Detroit. The Pirates still have a one-game lead, thanks to the Brewers, as I mentioned, they've lost six in a row. They've just been atrocious. And at this point, everything is status quo. Now, when we look at the A's, remember we talked about them as far as eclipsing the 62 Mets? Right now, they look like they're going on track to beat them. So, I just thought to throw that in there. I know I started off with Oakland, and here I am talking about them at this very moment, a few minutes after the fact. But uh, something to keep in mind. And as we look at the schedule for this upcoming weekend, let's see if we have anything that's juicy. We talked about Yankees-Red Sox. Again, they just played last weekend, so who knows if that's going to create a lot of buzz. We know the Red Sox are currently in last place, so eh. As of right this second, Toronto goes to Texas, so that's going to be an interesting test for the Blue Jays. Let's see how they do down in Arlington. Other than that, nothing really sticks out. Pittsburgh at Milwaukee, if you're into a division race here in the middle of June, let's see if Pittsburgh can take advantage of what Milwaukee has just been putrid here over, I'm going to say the whole season. Milwaukee, you would think they were going to run away with this thing, considering that Pittsburgh fell back to earth, but they've hung around, and although Pittsburgh has not played well, but they're still in first place, so let's see how they do over the course of the weekend. 
Other than that, Tampa Bay at San Diego. Is that a big series? Eh. Giants at Dodgers. We know it's a rivalry deal, but eh. not a lot to really chew on when you look at baseball this weekend. As we know, that is the only sport going here when it comes to the landscape. And let me pivot to golf as I break out the clubs. The U.S. Open taking place out in the L.A. Country Club, which will start today. And because of the time difference, especially come Sunday, whomever's going to be at the top of the leaderboard, you're going to have, instead of that 2 o'clock start, where you look at the, let's say the Masters, where the final round or that final group will be able to take place from 2 to 7, you're going to have a shift where the golf is going to take place pretty much from 5 to midnight and past that. So I don't know. It should be on NBC off the top of my head. But when we look at the golf this weekend, a course that not a lot of these players are familiar with, the players have not even walked the greens, let alone played them. So you wonder how that's going to factor in to how they perform here in these opening rounds whether they're going to bring the golf course to its knees or vice versa. So that's a big mystery heading into this U.S. Open, which it seemed like Brooks Koepka just won the PGA five minutes ago. So that's going to be one of the storylines going in. The other storyline, based on everything that happened last week and still unbeknownst to a lot of these golfers where the merge or the acquisition between the PGA and the Live Golf League and... Shouts to Jay Monahan, who had a medical issue, so speedy recovery to him, whatever that may be, him being the commissioner of the PGA. But now you have a scenario where you're going to have Brooks Kepka tandem or a troika with Hideki Matsuyama and Rory McIlroy, who we all know is the poster boy for the PGA. So you kind of wonder if there's going to be any eye contact or any conversation between the two, especially when they tee off later today. And with that whole specter of the Live Golf as well as the PGA and the aftermath of what took place there last week, are there going to be any rumblings? Is there going to be some side eyes or there's going to be some scoffing? Who knows? And we know that these players belong here, whether it's the Brooks Kepkas, Patrick Reeds, Dustin Johnsons, guys who have played well here at the start of this golf season. But we don't know what's going to take place here, especially in this first round or these first two rounds. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, I will say right now, you would think it's going to be Brooks Kepko or Scotty Scheffler or even a Dustin Johnson or guys like John Rom. Those would probably be your front runners. And I'm going to say Scotty Scheffler only because I picked them to win the PGA. I'm going to stick with him to see if he comes out on top. Rom, we know, won the Masters. So... A lot of intrigue with the golf course, intrigue with the PGA live dynamic and the players going in, Kepka, McElroy, how that's going to play out here, especially in this first round or so. And we'll recap it all on Monday when we reconvene and wrap it all up at that time. And then lastly, the NFL, yes, I do have something to discuss there where in Buffalo, There seemed to be a little bit of a falling out, dare I say, between Stephon Diggs, maybe the coaching staff, maybe the quarterback, the organization, who knows. As we saw here in the last couple of days with this mandatory minicamp and how he showed up 
but did not get onto the field there on Tuesday. And then yesterday, he did show up, ironed whatever it was between he and Coach Sean McDermott. Even Josh Allen said that he was involved and was even partially guilty as to what had taken place between he and Diggs. Who knows what was said? He didn't really divulge any specific details as to what that conversation was, but just from a standpoint of trying to get on the same page. I don't know if it's a thing where Diggs wants more money. If he's in a impasse or at an impasse with the organization, considering that a lot of these big-time receivers have gotten big contracts, and as it is, he's the third-highest-paid contract or has the third-highest-paid contract in the NFL as far as a wide receiver goes. But Diggs, we know he's a type of guy. He's very emotional, wears his heart on his sleeve, seems to be a good guy. But the last image that we got of Diggs was during the divisional round against Cincinnati where he was moping on the sidelines. You could see he was frustrated with how the game went. They did not score, but what, 10 points in the game against Cincinnati and was not a factor. And as we've seen with Diggs over the years, he seems to be the type of guy, I'm talking about on the field, where if he catches 15 balls for 148 yards and scores two touchdowns, but they end up losing, not to say he wants to lose or cares more about his stats, but if he catches two balls for 13 yards and doesn't get a touchdown and the Bills win, that's when it becomes a problem. Or in this case, he didn't get a lot of touches and they lost and he's going to look at it as, well, since you guys didn't get me the ball, this is one of the reasons why, if not the reason why, we didn't beat Cincinnati there in that divisional round. So whatever had gone on there, if this was dated back to the divisional round game in January and this was just coming to a head here in the last couple of days, that we won't know. But based on what McDermott has said, that everything seems to be under wraps, everything is resolved, whatever's gone on between Allen and Diggs, of course, Allen has nothing but great things to say about him, calls him his brother, a guy that he confides in, a guy that, of course, knows we're going to need him to get to where they want to be as far as getting to and winning a Super Bowl. So there doesn't seem to be any type of discord between the QB wide receiver tandem, but whatever has gone on there over the last... I'll say it, five, six months since that loss to Cincinnati up in the snow at Orchard Park. Who knows? If everything's ironed out now, it's all kumbaya, nothing to worry about, fine. But who knows what's going to be relinquished here once training camp starts in the latter part of July as we get into the season. And Buffalo, as we all know, over the last few years, they've had opportunities, whether it was in the championship game that they lost badly to in KC, that classic divisional playoff game, which they lost in overtime, which then proceeded to change the overtime rules when it comes to the postseason. And then last year, just a flat-out disappointment. Although they didn't play well down the stretch, that game against Miami, the Dolphins should not have been in that game with Skylar Thompson, the third-string quarterback. And now, as they go into this season, I wonder if they're going to be, not necessarily under the radar, but we know the defending champs with the Chiefs, the Bengals you think would be better, Who knows what's going to happen with the Ravens, with Lamar back in the mix, with Odell Beckham Jr. The Chargers, will they take a step up? Will Jacksonville now also be a team to be reckoned with? And the Jets, obviously, haven't even talked about them with Aaron Rodgers. So Buffalo, who knows? Are they going to be a team that's going to be at the forefront in the AFC? We know they're probably going to be the favorites to win the division. But is there going to be that much more of a piano on their back to finally get to a Super Bowl, all the expectations, everything that has pretty much led up to this point, 
right now, they're not a team that's under the radar, but they're just kind of meddling in the middle because of what Kansas City's done and because Cincinnati's been to the championship game and a Super Bowl in the last two years. And Buffalo hasn't even been to a conference title game going back now three years. So, again, a lot of time to digest this, a lot of time to really smooth this all out because between now and training camp, it's going to be quiet. But as we all know, once the NFL season gets closer, once it actually arrives, everybody's going to be just gaga for what's going on in Buffalo, the expectations, everything that I mentioned. And let's see if this will blow over or will this have any type of after effects into training camp. And obviously we haven't heard from Diggs yet, so we'll have to wait and see what he has to say when that time comes. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about the books. As always, thank you so much for t- carving some time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate that. Of course, your participation is never, ever taken for granted. If you want to hit me up on any of my socials, you can do so at the following on YouTube, at J Reels, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels, one just a number. If you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so by going to the Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, I know I've neglected this platform, but if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com slash the J Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth will go 100% to this production, the upkeep of the website, the equipment, etc. Anything and everything that has to do with this experience into this microphone, to your earbuds, headphones, or speakers to make it that much more pleasurable, enjoyable, entertaining, informative. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. As I like to say, I'm not going anywhere as long as I'm alive and breathing on God's green earth. I love to share not only the fire, passion, fury, and energy of sports just following it since birth. Sharing my opinions, thoughts, analysis, critique, praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, directed, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>